Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 159. We can't start today's episode without acknowledging the tragic news that Hawaiian surfer Mikala Jones, 44 years young, passed away over the weekend in the Mentawais. As graceful and stylish a surfer as you can imagine, his career was marked by adventure and capturing some of the most beautiful imagery anyone has ever seen. Everyone that was fortunate enough to cross his path was gifted the experience of his warmth, kindness, humility, and incredible talent. My heart is with his family and friends right now. Rest in peace, Mikala. Okay. The Belito Pro, presented by O'Neill, event number three of six on the 2023 WSL Challenger Series season, finished on Saturday with Western Australia's Bronte McCauley and San Clemente's Cole Hauschman taking home the wins. Hauschman vaults to number one on the CS rankings and McCauley into fifth, with three events remaining in Huntington Beach, Aracera, and Socorama. Once the CS season finishes, the top 10 men and the top five women will have earned their spots onto the 2024 WSL Championship Tour. Stop number nine on this year's Championship Tour season, the Corona Open J-Bay, commences this week with the world's best surfers looking to crack the final five for a shot at September's world title deciding Rip Curl WSL Finals. The Corona Open J-Bay will stream live on worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. All right, episode 159. Uh, something a little different this week in honor of our upcoming CT event. Today's episode is our Maiden Lineups Watershed format, it's a working title, where we zero in on an important moment in CT history. Watershed number one being Jordy Smith's Maiden CT victory at Jeffreys Bay in 2010. It's an opportunity for us to lean into the context, not only surrounding the victory, but of Smith himself, his incredible trajectory to the Elite Championship Tour, the paradigm-shifting impact it made on the surf industry, and the connective tissue between the South Africans that came before him and those following in his impressive footsteps. So I appreciate you humoring me in this effort, and. For those of you who understandably don't like the sound of my voice, you can skip ahead to when Pat O'Connell joins me to give his take on Jordy's first CT win, or just wait until next week when we return to our regularly scheduled programming. And while I understand this podcast is not my day job and it's a volunteer project, I still very much enjoy doing it uh, in my free time because it creates a conversation about topics that I'm interested in, and, and I, I genuinely am uh, humbled by anyone and everyone that listens and everyone I get to interact with because of it. So thank you for that, and please enjoy episode one of the Lineups Watershed series, Jordy Smith's Maiden CT Win. As we have litigated time and time and time again on this very podcast, the specter of collective expectations casts a very long shadow. If the collective expectation is that you're not only going to easily win multiple world titles right away, but you're also going to usher in a golden dawn of new surfing while doing so, 
then 26th and 11th is not going to cut it. And to win world titles, you have to win CT events. And after a couple of years on tour for Mr. Smith, not even a final yet. That changes in 2010. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your lips. And now I just say, put them up once, it's gone. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. I thought you Okay, let's rewind the clock. The year is 2010. Barack Obama is president of the United States. James Cameron's original Avatar is in theaters and barreling towards $745 million gross. Kesha's TikTok, the song, not the app, is at the top of the charts. The point is, it was a different time. And the surfing world was in a radically different place than it is today. The global financial crisis, a bomb that's wick was lit in equal parts by short-sighted deregulation, the subprime mortgage market, and greed, 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 happened in 2008, throwing the US economy, and by extension the global economy, into a turmoil not seen since the 1930s. Two years later, in 2010, the endemic industry, at the time dominated by brands like Quicksilver, Billabong, Hurley, O'Neill, and Rip Curl, were feeling the ripple effects of the GFC, specifically publicly traded brands like Quicksilver and Billabong, who, for the first time in their storied histories, had to engage with bankers, auditors, and accountants, looking at their respective marketing budgets and asking, what the f***? It's true. Even in the best of times, perhaps more intensely during the best of times, surf marketing can be a vaguely intangible exercise. And the meteoric success of the big brands in the 1980s, the 1990s, and the 2000s led to surfing's version of proliferation as they battled amongst themselves to sponsor premium CT venues and elite talent coming through the ranks. On the back of decades of arguably revolutionary hard good innovations in the wetsuit and board short space and the high margin soft goods sales that followed, these brands were riding high with some of them orbiting the billion dollar valuation mark. Not bad for a bunch of surf bums who started these companies in their garages as an excuse to keep surfing. Whether or not they actually kept surfing is another story. With that in mind, let's flash back to the year of 2008 and one Jordan Michael Smith of Durban, South Africa, aged 19 at the time, born February 11th, the same day as one Robert Kelly Slater, different years of course. At this point, the then surfing world had just seen the Andy Irons dynasty of 2002, 2003, and 2004, the supernatural resurrection of Kelly Slater in 2006 and 2008, and the first assault of the Coolangatta kids in Mick Fanning's 2007 maiden title. Adriano D'Souza was making inroads for South America, but the, quote, Brazilian storm that had come to dominate surfing in 2023 had yet to form as a concern or even a thought in the minds of the Western, and let's face it, largely white male surfing world back then. However, as is the primary constant within the surfing industrial complex, everyone can drink, the obsession is always with the cult of youth. Who's next? 
rang out the hive mind cry. Who has the style, the power, the competitive chops, the innovation, the air game, the look, the attitude? Who is the entire package that will vault surfing into the next era? Who, as tired as this phrase has always been, is our next Kelly Slater? And that hive mind at the time landed on two firm answers. California's Dane Reynolds is American surfing's great white hope. A reluctant messiah, widely regarded as the best free surfer on the planet, and heir apparent to eight-time world champion Kelly Slater. Ventura's reluctant messiah, Dane Reynolds, who, while featuring in today's episode, is an entirely different story for an entirely different time. And the second, the seemingly constructed in a high-performance surfing laboratory, Durban surfing phenom Jordy Smith thrives on the attention. Well, I think Jordy's the most confident guy I've ever seen. He's just, you know, he's really confident no matter what. And uh, the more pressure people seem to put on him, the more he seems to excel. So, I mean, as much as this hype has been going, it can work against you. But I, I see with Jordy working for him. Now, the country of South Africa was no stranger to producing world-class surfers at this point. Sean Thompson, Michael Thompson, Michael Burness, Wendy Boita, Martin Potter, let's not quibble about where he came from, Pierre Tosti, Heather Clark, Greg Emsley, Royden Bryson, Travis Logie, and the like. However, there was a significant disconnect. There remains a significant disconnect between the quality of surf found in that country, the quality of surfer that country produces, and their relatively underwhelming numbers slash success on the elite championship tour. The geographical remoteness of South Africa and the challenging currency exchange rate no doubt played and play big roles in this disconnect. But everyone, everyone, everyone understood that where there are waves and where there are world-class surfers, a tidal threat will eventually emerge. And that's when Jordy Smith stepped onto the world stage. Before we get to his maiden CT victory, let's wind the clock back on Mr. Smith. As we said before, Jordan Michael Smith, yes, named in reverse after Michael Jordan, was born on February 11th, 1988 in Durban, South Africa to Llewellyn and Graham G-Force Smith. Llewellyn was a teacher and Graham was and is a surfboard maker and a factory manager. First with the aforementioned G-Force, then having the license for lost surfboards in South Africa, and now with Smith, that's S-M-T-H, consistent with the surfing world's ongoing war against vowels. Now, G-Force reportedly had Jordy surfing by age three, which frankly doesn't shock when you look at how good he was early on and remains to this day. Durban is known as South Africa's surf city, and Durban's Golden Mile is actually five miles, stretching from Ushaka down to the Blue Lagoon and encompasses the New Pier area and its fabled sandbars. I've never had the pleasure of visiting Durban despite traveling to South Africa a few times, but the waves along this stretch of beach reportedly get very, very good, offering surfers everything from barrels to ramps to turn sections and even gravel practice. These are the beach breaks that not only produce Martin Potter, Travis Logie, and Jordy Smith, but also local legends like Paul Canning, Davey Weir, Daniel Redman, Simon Nicholson, Ricky Baznet, and Warwick Wright, to name a few. Back to Jordy, he is immediately good. He's big, he's strong, he's agile, he is competitive, and his dad builds surfboards for a living brew. 
he is instantly dominant in the amateur ranks, and that attracts the attention of major sponsors. In 1997, Jordy signs with Billabong. He is nine years old, and that seems totally normal in the surfing world. As a Billabong team rider, he takes advantage of the prestigious Billabong Bloodlines program, a development system that remains in place to this day. Bloodlines is a program where kids from around the world are put into an intracompany ecosystem where they travel internationally, they train, they get exposed to different waves and cultures, and are endlessly tested to see who has what it takes to become a champion. While any astute observer of surfing will likely not need any further proof of how effective this program is for Billabong, who boasts a huge number of world champions and surfers of impact from their former and current rosters, I would encourage anyone interested to check out filmmaker Bolly Strickland's Stepping Stones from 2002, which features a murderer's row of upcoming talent, including Sean Canstell, B. Durbage, Adrian Buchan, Nate Yeomans, Luke Dorrington, Wade Goodall, and Jordy Smith himself. In addition to featuring in Stepping Stones, as well as the internationally released Passion Pop, Jordy's time in Billabong's Bloodlines program also produced a World Amateur title in 2003 and the prestigious ASP World Junior title in 2006. In short, at one of the surfing world's high-water marks from a financial and power perspective, Jordy Smith emerged as one of the most sought-after prospects of the modern era. And with that attention came strain on a number of relationships, including with Billabong. The details were somewhat murky then, and they remain murky to this day. But at some point before 2007, there was a rupture between Jordy Smith and longtime supporter Billabong. There was a manager involved who's no longer around. Jordy pulled his stickers off his boards. He was served breach of contract papers on the beach at the U.S. Open. Very high drama in the small world of professional surf business. Whatever the details actually were, the result is Smith blitzes the then World Qualifying Series, the WKS, mostly stickerless, his clean boards racking up a metric ton of points and creating perhaps one of the more fertile environments for a bidding war the surfing world had ever seen. In addition to the clamoring of all the endemic brands, there are reports that Nike was flying him up to their Oregon headquarters, being greeted by Phil Knight, loading him up with shoes, conference calls with Tiger Woods, the whole nine, iron, or yards. That's a crap joke. We're going to keep it in there, though. With the entire surfing world heralding Jordy as the most important competitive and free surfing prospect since Mick Fanning a decade prior, everyone wanted in on him just before his championship tour debut. But first, of course, there was the lingering issue of his breach of contract with Billabong, a public standoff which ended, as so many things do, with a press statement. On October 22nd, 2007, Billabong released the following. And I quote, Billabong International Limited and professional surfer Jordy Smith announced today that they have resolved the pending arbitration which Billabong initiated against Jordy Smith, his father, and one of Jordy's former consultants in late July 2007. The dispute involved the status of Jordy's athlete sponsorship agreement with Billabong. Billabong, which had sponsored Jordy for 10 years, alleged that Jordy was in breach of his agreement. 
Jordy denied that he was in breach of the agreement. The matter was amicably resolved by Billabong releasing Jordy in exchange for an undisclosed sum. Jordy expressed his appreciation for the support the Billabong had provided him over the course of many years, and he wishes them the very best. Billabong wishes Jordy well for the balance of his career and looks forward to his debut on the World Championship Tour in 2008. End quote. I don't think I've ever heard someone say the word amicable in the wild. It wouldn't surprise me if it's happened, but it just seems like one of those words that exists exclusively in corporate and legal statements. The language in this statement is unnecessary for pretty much everyone who read it. It's a statement likely written by lawyers and one the public probably shouldn't have been exposed to. It is insane. And I say that as someone who's participated in the creation of dozens of these kinds of statements, which makes me a little bit insane. Anywho, the week prior, Smith won the prestigious O'Neill Coldwater Classic at Santa Cruz's Steamer Lane. He didn't have any stickers on his board when he belted everyone out at the lane. He was, however, wearing O'Neill wetsuits at O'Neill's event in O'Neill's backyard. And lo and behold, October 23rd, 2007, the very next day after the Billabong statement, the surfing headlines read out, Jordy Smith signs deal with O'Neill. All rumors in the reporting, of course, it's rumored to be in the seven-figure range, and it's rumored to be a very long-term contract. Who is on the O'Neill team when they sign Jordy? San Clemente's Patrick Godowskis, Huntington Beach's Timmy Reyes, Kauai's Roy Powers, Florida's Corey Lopez, to name a few, all of whom we named were either on the CT at the time or would be joining him very soon. Oh, and another kid on the O'Neill team at the time, a uh, toe-headed natural footer from Hawaii by the name of John John Florence. I'm not sure what happened to him. Anyway, after dominating the QS, establishing himself as one of the best free surfers on the planet and signing a huge deal with O'Neill, Jordy was prepared to embark upon his rookie season on the championship tour in 2008. For nearly two decades, the championship tour started with the Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast at Snapper Rocks in late February, early March. It was a whole deal for the surfing world. All the brands were there, all the magazines, the CT surfers, the up-and-comers, the parties, a palpable energy around what was possible and what would potentially unfold in the season ahead. The ASP banquet would happen each year on the Gold Coast a couple of days before the first event kicked off, where everyone would get dressed up and officially crown the world champions from the prior season. It ranged in terms of locations and levels of debauchery, but I was always struck by the reverence that the surfers had for the night. You know, turning up and honoring their peers was a great evening of respect, and and I genuinely and truly felt privileged to even be in the same room as that. In 2008, I think my title was international media manager, and one of my responsibilities was to get quotes from surfers ahead of the event for press purposes. And in 2008, one of the surfers on my list was Jordy Smith. I remember walking into Jordy's accommodation at the Rainbow Place Apartments. He and I had spoken a few times over the prior years, and he was always really nice and and polite when I spoke to him, and and I always found him really well-spoken and really thoughtful. The thing I remember from this specific encounter was that he had yet to commit to a full-time shaper, and his place in Kulingada was floor-to-ceiling stacked with dozens of boards from multiple shapers. If someone had told me that 100 boards were in that room, 
I wouldn't have challenged them. It was bonkers. He was getting 15 to 20 boards from each shaper delivered there. He was very in demand, and eventually he settled on JS for the first couple of years on tour before moving to Channel Islands and then back to JS and now with Smith. So much has been spoken about and written about the high-performance surfing dyad for Star Wars fans out there that happened in this era between Dane Reynolds and Jordy Smith that it would be malpractice not to at least reference it. The surfing world loves to categorize people, specifically on tour. They love to bucket people into two broad groups between, quote, surfers and, quote, competitors. This is a special kind of malpractice in its own right, but when it came to Jordy and Dane, Dane was labeled the, quote, surfer on account of his perceptible aloofness when it came to competition and as a point of comparison and likely the very loud collective calls as a world title prospect, Jordy was labeled the, quote, competitor. Again, this is malpractice and stupid on the merits. Dane has since been on the record many times, claiming he was and is competitive both in and out of a jersey. And as Yade Nickel once put it, no one gets through the QS unless they are a competitive bastard. And on the other hand, Jordy was and remains to this day one of the greatest free surfing talents the world has ever seen. In any event, they were a pair, a forced dyad, when it came to the surfing world in those early years on tour. And as Jordy himself said on this very podcast in 2021, reflecting upon those years, quote, my main, main driving force was Dane. You know, I don't, I, it was like, I don't feel like I would have pushed as hard as I did if Dane wasn't there. Mm. Um, and he just kind of, whether he knew it or not, yeah, it just that that that's what got me inspired. That's what I I amped out on, and um, yeah, it was exciting, man. Inside and outside of competition, these two are linked in these years. In addition to trading blows and shouldering the unbearable weight of expectations on the championship tour, they both featured prominently in Kai Neville's paradigm shifting, that, that may be a bit much, maybe it's not, film Modern Collective. They both continue to work with Kai on later films like Lost Atlas, which was a little bloated in my opinion, with Dane featuring on later Dear Suburbia and Cluster, both much better in my opinion, and Kai and Jordy collaborated on Jordy's profile film Bending Colors with AU in 2014. But this isn't an episode about that. This is an episode about Jordy's first championship tour win. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, 
wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. And here we arrive. It's 2010. Jordy's been on the championship tour since 2008, where he finished 26th, which is not a world title number, and then followed it up in 2009 with a much improved 11th, which, while better, is still not a world title number. Jordy's best results in 2008, his rookie season, a ninth on the Gold Coast going down to Dean Morrison, a ninth at Jeffreys Bay going down to Taj Burrow, and a ninth at Trestles also going down to Taj Burrow, who probably won the event but finished runner-up. We're not going to get into it here. Close heats happen. His best result in 2009, a third at Bells Beach going down to eventual winner Joel Parkinson. Point being, these are no slouches that he's losing to. These are world killers. And as a tour rookie and sophomore, he's getting beyond respectable results. However, as we have litigated time and time and time again on this very podcast, the specter of collective expectations casts a very long shadow. If the collective expectation is that you're not only going to easily win multiple world titles right away, but you're also going to usher in a golden dawn of new surfing while doing so, then 26th and 11th is not going to cut it. And to win world titles, you have to win CT events. And after a couple of years on tour for Mr. Smith, not even a final yet. That changes in 2010. His 2010 results leading up to the July Billabong Pro J-Bay were as follows. He starts the year with a bang, runner-up to Taj Burrow on the Gold Coast. At Bills Beach, he finishes fifth place, going down to eventual winner Mick Fanning in the quarterfinals. At Santa Catarina, another fifth place, going down to eventual runner-up Kelly Slater, who then went on to dump all over rookie Jadson Andre after Andre's first CT victory, which is just rude. And that, my friends, leads us to South Africa as CT stop number four on the 2010 Championship Tour. It was the year of the World Cup. It was the year of the World Cup being held in South Africa. If you're flying to South Africa from America, never has this route been short. But in 2010, it was bafflingly long because flights were largely booked out on account of the beautiful game. 
I think my job title in 2010 was International Media Director. It doesn't really matter. Titles are largely pointless in my experience. Essentially, I was a liaison between the media, the sponsors, the surfers, and the ASP administrators at the time. And to get to South Africa in 2010, I personally flew LAX to Brisbane, which was 14 hours. I had a two-hour layover. And then I flew Brisbane to Johannesburg, which was another 14 hours. That's 28 hours out of 30 being in a plane. That's less a complaint than an observation to rip off a line from 2011's margin call, quote, it's hardly a U-boat on Normandy Beach in 1944. I got to experience the world's best surfers at Jeffrey's Bay, so happy times all around. I will add, though, that at this point, I'd been working on tour for a few years now, and I had some modest status with the airlines. After nearly two decades doing this now, I still don't have an expert understanding of how status really works. I always think I have more points than I actually do, and I'm consistently baffled by social media folks who miraculously end up in the pointy end of the plane. Again, these aren't complaints. That's just the way it is. Whatever the case, I vividly recall checking in for my LAX to Brisbane flight and being informed that I'd been upgraded to something called, quote, premium economy for the first leg of my flight. I have no idea if this upgrade was earned through my status or just pity taken by the check-in people upon looking at my itinerary. Either way, I felt like a king in premium economy for 14 hours to Brisbane and was then immediately put back in my place for the journey to Johannesburg. As the great Kurt Vonnegut so aptly put it, so it goes. I digress again. Back on the ground in Jeffreys Bay and sifting through the fog of jet lag. For those who've never been to this part of the planet, it is truly and breathtakingly beautiful. Jeffreys Bay has to be one of the wonders of the surfing world. The town, the community, the surroundings, the wildlife, the surfers, the waves. It is incredible and I appreciate every chance I've had to be there. In 2010, we had pretty good conditions for the event. It wasn't great, and the surf did get a little smaller towards the end of the competition. Jordy Smith's results through the event. In round one, he gets a win over Joanne Daru and Tom Whitaker with 16.37 points. In round three, he gets a win over Nathan Yeomans, callback to Stepping Stones, with 15.07 points. In round four, he gets a win over Owen Wright. Jordy Smith put together a two-wave total of 17.87 to Owen Wright's 15.83, moving him that much closer to his first tour victory. I knew Owen was going to be a tough competitor. He's probably looked, you know, pretty much the best backside out here all, uh, all event long. So I knew it was going to be tough to beat him and uh, had to pick the right waves and luckily I just did that. In the quarterfinals, he gets a win over Adriano D'Souza with 16.43 points. Adriano D'Souza's 9.20 total was no match for the informed South African. Jordy's two-wave score of 16.43 was more than enough to get him a spot in the semis. Yeah, I'm glad to make it to the semis. I haven't made it to the semis yet Jaber, for a while, so um, really excited and also so lucky that Adriano had to do it. In the semifinals, he takes on B. Durbage, another Stepping Stones alumni, with 14.4 points. Jordy had 15 seconds to score a 7.5. The last score comes through to 7.93. I don't remember what happened. I just kind of, it was much of a blur, really, but uh, just kind of, you know, went for it and lucky I got the scores. If I could just win, uh, that'd be nice. Uh, first win ever, could be at home. 
the crowd favorite becomes obvious. Smith, all the way. Ah, uh, Jordy, bro. Definitely Jordy. Jordy, Jordy, Jordy. Jordy's gonna win. Oh, it's South African first time in the final, and it's gonna happen. Jordy, Jordy Smith. Smith. Jordy, Jordy Smith. South African. Because we South African. <laughs> he's a good kid. I want to see him definitely push it. He will. I want to, he's got a good, good chance. He's the man. And in the finals, he takes down Australia's Adam Melling with 17.93 points. In his third year on tour, South African Jordy Smith finally got the taste of victory in his home country in front of his friends and family as he was announced the 2010 Billabong Pro Champion. I don't even have words that can describe how I feel, you know, I came out of the water, even in the water I started crying and, you know, gave Meling a big hug and uh, it's really cool to be out there surfing with him because, you know, he's a really humble guy and I uh, have a lot of respect for him and he's, you know, probably one of the best surfers out here at J-Bay. Let's hear it for your 2010 Billabong Pro. The Vuvuzelas, the plastic horns that were all the rage at that year's World Cup, had somehow made their way down to Jeffreys Bay. And while loud and annoying, but somewhat charming, all event, a veritable fleet of them erupted with Smith's win on hometown soil. That shit was wild and fun and good for Jordy and good for the Springboks. His average heat score in this event, 16.35. His average single wave score, 8.17. A very dominant performance. Impressive is the word that comes to mind then and then following and even to this day. Jordy Smith is a damned impressive surfer. When was the last time a South African won a world tour event before Jordy? Well, officially, that was Wendy Boita at the Alternativa Pro in Rio de Janeiro in October of 1992, 18 years prior. Who was the last male South African to win a world tour event? Well, that's a little more complicated. Martin Potter, who developed on the beaches of Durban but competed for Great Britain throughout his world tour career, won his last event at that level in August of 1993 at the Lacanau Pro, so 17 years prior. And if Potts doesn't do it for you, then the last official South African male to win a world tour event before Jordy's 2010 Billabong Pro J-Bay win was Mr. Sean Thompson at the Spur Steak Ranch Surf Bout in Cape Town, South Africa. The month was July, the year 1986, 24 years before Jordy's victory at Jeffrey's Bay. Anyway you slice it, it was a very long time between drinks for South Africa. Congratulations to Jordy, he deserves all the praise he gets. Now, what happened during the rest of the 2010 season? Jordy was number one coming out of South Africa and seemed poised to collect his long prophesied world title that season. However, the hive mind is a fickle beast and it had other itches to scratch. Earlier on, we mentioned that part of Jordy's upward trajectory was the clarion call demanding an answer to who is the next Kelly Slater? Well, turns out Kelly was still on tour then. That's 13 years ago. He's still on tour now. Well, Kelly had nine world titles at the start of 2010. 
2010 has a 10 in it. And weirdly enough, everyone seemed to collectively will the possibility of, quote, 10 in 10. And Kelly, a self-admitted numerologist, which is probably a gateway drug to conspiracy theories, surely enjoyed the idea himself. So after Jeffrey's Bay is event five, Tahiti. Jordy Smith loses to wildcard Manoa Drolet in round three, which is not great. Kelly Slater loses to Andy Irons in the semifinals. F- yeah. Andy goes on to win in Tahiti. F- yeah, again. Sadly, it is the last win of his career. More on that later. Event six is Trestles. Jordy goes down to B Derbage in the quarterfinals. Much better, but who won the event? Kelly Slater. Event seven is France. Jordy loses to Mick Fanning in the quarterfinals. Another decent result. Mick goes on to win the event, but who finishes runner up? Kelly Slater, another uh uh-oh. Event eight is Portugal. Who should meet in the finals at Portugal? None other than Kelly Slater and Jordy Smith. Who wins? Kelly Slater. This is looking very close now. I knew that uh, Jordy was gonna be my biggest test. You know, he's probably technically the best surfer in the world right now. Um, he just he lands everything he tries and he can do pretty much every single maneuver so you know it's it's hard to think that you can sit and be safe against Jordy you, you could have two eights and all of a sudden he's got a nine five and he's looking for a six five or something and and uh, you know that's how he surfs heats. Event nine is Puerto Rico the rib curl search event at middles it's Halloween weekend and the first week of November this is the horrible week that Andy Irons passed away The details are out there if you want to read about them. I'm not going to go into it now. I was on the ground for all of this, and the tour was devastated. After a few days of postponement, it was decided that competition would resume, and when it resumed, Middles was pumping. To this day, some of the most high-performance surfing we've ever seen in a contest. Jordy at this point was behind the eight ball and needed Kelly to falter if he wanted to keep his own title hopes alive. And what happened? Kelly did not falter. Instead, he put up 18.87 points in his quarterfinal heat against Adriano D'Souza and clinched his 10th world title in front of thousands of screaming fans on the beach. 20 years of pro surfing, I've been there and I'm just gonna need to think about it a little bit. I mean, after, after 10, I gotta question what is there for me. Um, you know, and if, if, if the idea of 11 becomes appealing, then I'll, I'll get focused on that. If not, then, uh, you know, I'll get focused on the rest of my life. There was this little catwalk that connected the staircase from the beach to the athlete area, and I was standing there managing Kelly's time between the clinching of his 10th world title and his upcoming semifinal heat. Adriano, who had put up an inspired fight throughout the season and throughout the event, and who would eventually go on to win his own world title five years later in 2015, was despondent as he walked past me. Reportedly, he didn't even take his jersey off. He just walked home on the highway with his surfboard following his loss to Kelly. I love Adriano. Jordi would go down to Tahitian Michelle Berez in the next heat. Kelly would go on to win the event. So much winning. The final event of the year was Pipeline. Jordy surfed well, but went down to eventual pipe master Kieran Perot in the quarterfinals. Kelly, who was on the roll of all roles at this point, was halted by a no f- given Jeremy Flores, who went on to beat Kieran in the finals. Jordy finished the season as world runner-up, which is still his best result to date.
Any way you slice it, 2010, the good, the bad, and the ugly, was a remarkable year in surfing. And Jordy Smith's Maiden Win played a significant role in that remarkability. Joining us now to discuss is someone who was, in 2010, the head of surf and the head of marketing at Hurley before heading to become SVP of Tours and Competition at the WSL and now serves as president at Florence Marine, Mr. Pat O'Connell. All right, we are recording this in July of 2023. Geez, time's moving pretty quick these days. But you are currently president of Florence Marine X, but we're going to be focusing on a window of time that's the end of the 2000s, where you were serving in sports marketing for Hurley, your former championship tour competitor, the star of the Endless Summer 2 and all-around good guy, Pat O'Connell. Pat, thanks so much for doing this for us. Cheers, Dave. I feel like this is uh, visualizing our morning call anyways. <laughs> That's a good point. Just, we're just recording it. with Dave. That's right. That's we're right. just recording it. We've had we're this conversation 10,000 times already. <laughs> our mundane morning calls on the way to the office. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But this is, yeah. it's pretty fun. We're, we're experimenting with a new format for the show, the Watersheds, which is a working title format, where every so often we're going to zero in on an important moment from the past. Now, everyone who's listening to this podcast has just heard me talk about Jordy Smith's maiden CT win for the last 30 or so minutes. Um, and you and I, Pat, we were the, uh, the guinea pigs for the very first pilot test for this podcast back in 2019. <laughs> so now we get to be guinea pigs uh, again, because you're going to be our subject matter expert on our original journey here into uh, Watersheds wow. Land. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. So 2007, uh, winding the clock back, what was your role at Hurley and what were your responsibilities? Well, going back quite a bit. So, um, so Dave, I left the tour of 2005. Um, Bob Hurley was so gracious to give me uh, some responsibility. He just said, hey, come in, grab a box, grab, you know, you can ship boxes, you can you can do whatever it takes. Let's uh, keep the keep the wheels moving. And um, I had grand ambitions. I was, yeah, trying to uh, take over the world. And um, so basically, I started. I was basically a marketing minion. I did whatever we needed to do, um, focusing on the athletes and kind of our portfolio um, around the world. That was kind of what I did mainly, but just sort of did every little chore that needed to be done at the time. Right on. And, and we won't flash too far ahead, but I mean, you, a man of ambition, you're now president of one of Bob's companies. So, Hey, it, anyone <laughs> out there that thinks they're too big to start shipping boxes. Yeah. Well, let's, so the team Hurley in 2007, which I'm calling Jordy's free agency year for lack of a better term, but I had to look at the CT rankings and from what I could tell, it looks like the only team rider that Hurley had on the men's championship tour that season was Australia's Adrian Ace Bucken. Is that vaguely how you remember it at that time? Yep. Yep. Yes, and, absolutely. And then you would have had Brett Simpson and Yay Nickel coming through the qualifying series. They'd end up qualifying in the next couple of years. But I guess the point being for a company as competitive as Hurley with the war chest of Nike ownership in the background, 
it seems like you would have been encouraged to either develop or acquire a world title contender or two, and that a 2007 conversation with Jordy was more than likely. Is that fair? Yeah. You know, we had Rob at the time oh, of who course, yeah. was not on tour, um, who was doing great things. But yeah, definitely we were looking at the time uh, for a top level CT surfer that was in the world title kind of campaign. That was definitely a, um, whether it was a hole or just something that we felt that was important to us as a brand. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Jordy, you know, Jordy had, and I, you guys just talked about, he had won. There was a lot of excitement around Jordy. Um, and certainly, um, certainly it was of interest to us. Yeah. We jumped in and kind of had a poke. (laughs) (laughs) Now I, I won't ask you to go into too many details, but like, is that in, in, in your capacity at the time and with Jordy and his dad and whoever else was in that orbit, is it a face to face? Is it a phone call? Is it more than one meeting? Like, like how heavy handed was the, the Hurley approach to the Jordy Smith acquisition back then? Well, Dave, I think every situation is different, mm. right? Um, and every negotiation or a relationship, whether it's, you know, a retail situation or, I mean, every deal is different. Mm. So the Jordy one, um, certainly was, uh, I think the the guy's name was Andrew Long was managing Jordy at the time. Mm. Uh, and I think our first meeting was at Hurley with Andrew and Graham. Um, and it was just a lunch and just a quick sort of get to know you like, Hey, cool, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't believe Jordy was, uh, was actually there that time. I think it was around a U.S. Open. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's interesting to hear. I mean, and one of the things that, that's that's really interesting about this period of time, because you yourself, you've traveled the globe for decades. You've been to South Africa multiple times. And one of the things we talked about in the first part of the podcast was the disconnect between how good the waves are in South Africa, how good <laughs> the surfers are there, and yeah. their relative small numbers on the championship tour over history. And, and in your experience, is that a fair assessment? Do you think there is a disconnect that, you know, compared to Australia and Hawaii and America, Brazil, Europe, wherever, that South Africans are underrepresented on tour just from a talent perspective? I would say yes. I think there's a couple of reasons for it. Mm. Um, one is probably just the fact that their currency doesn't get them very far. Sure. Um, the reality of living in South Africa and being so far away from a lot of the other surfing uh, destinations uh, and the fact that the RAND doesn't get you that far. It's financially very, very difficult for them to do things. So I think that's one piece. Um, I also think, you know, hey, growing up where I did in Orange County and sort of, you know, every other day, and I, I'll, I'll specifically call out San Clemente, mm. um, which is um, – which is just this crazy sort of experiment that's happening where all the best surfers in sort of this region have all centered and either moved. Mm. The level of surfing just kind of keeps going higher and higher and higher. And you have that connection into the world's best. You, you know, um, Kelly Slater's paddling out almost every couple of days, whatever it is, Belohe, right. Felipe, um, all these guys, you know, Griffin, they live in San Clemente and they surf, Trussels, whether, you know, and, and I think in years 
to come. We'll see if this is a, a good thing or maybe even it might not be that good. Mm. Um, but certainly the level of focus and kind of building on it every day is um, is interesting. And so for South Africa, again, it's so far off. I mean, the, the world's best surfers are there right now. They're there for basically three weeks. They've got Belito and then they've got J-Bay. Mm. It's a relatively short period of time to interact. And even for a period of time, Jordy, you know, was spending a lot of time here and or Hawaii. And so, you know, your, your best surfer from your region isn't even home that often. Mm. And so I do think there's something to the effect of, like I said, yes, currency makes a difference, but hey, paddling out every day with someone that's better than you actually rise helps you rise mm. um hopefully it doesn't get you too discouraged right um <laughs> but you, you know sharing that and bringing that that entire uh country up i think um yeah i think that's a big part of it but again there's crazy great surfers i think the real thing is the financial burden and mm. where they're at is makes it difficult yeah it's a good read you know and and i guess with that in mind taking it back a little bit to 2007, what what was the Southern California industry mindset when it came to Jordy in 2007, right? You mentioned you guys had a poke, but obviously there was this feeding frenzy around this particular person. Do you think it was based on pure talent and potential or did did, well, maybe in addition to, did the exotic, and I'm, and by exotic, I mean a world title prospect from somewhere that hadn't had a lot in recent decades, the exotic nature of Jordy have anything to do with that appeal? Um, I think anytime there's somebody that offers something that's not sort of just the bland and basic, uh, that there's mm. something to, um, there's something that could be interesting. I mean, ultimately, it's about somebody's performance if they're doing crazy things and, you know, um, if they're surfing at such a high level, at some level that stuff comes along because performance is the one thing that, um, no matter what is, uh, kind of makes you interesting, I guess. Right. Um, that being said, uh, I will, uh, I'm not sure coming from Africa makes the biggest difference or not. Um, it's just another piece of the, of the wheel. If, um, but, um, but certainly performance is the number one criteria. Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code THELINEUP15. 
That's manduka.com, code the lineup 1515. So, end of 2007, O'Neill signs with Jordy. 2008, it's his rookie season on the CT. He finishes 26th, best results being ninths on the Gold Coast, Jeffreys Bay and Trestles. 2009, Jeez. it's his, yep. 2009 is his sophomore year on tour. He finishes 11th, his best result being a third at Bells Beach. Now, I'll pause here because another really important component of this story related to the previously discussed bidding war were just how heavy the calls were for almost an immediate world title for Jordy when he made the tour. You know, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm struggling to think of anyone else in recent history who had the collective call from the surfing world being, we expect a world title right away, you know? And, and for sure, there's been like a lot of hype around surfers and a lot of popular surfers qualifying for the tour. But I think the hardcore surfing pundits that over the last 20, 30 years, I'm trying, I'm trying to think, and I'm wondering if you can think of anyone else that like rookie season, it was not a wild expectation to be like, this person's going to win a world title. Yeah. It's interesting to think too, at that time, because the tour was, it was pretty strong and mm. to be that bold. Um, I don't remember. I, I remember the hype. I don't necessarily remember, um, going, hey, Jordy, you need to win a world title. Mm. But certainly, you know, because there was a bidding war, and one thing that I definitely will say here, just to sort of, um, <laughs> I think there's been some wild uh, uh, stuff when we were at Hurley about the offers and things that we put down. One thing, um, I will clear the air and say, we actually never put an offer in for Jordy, mm. which was, um, uh, I think, wildly speculated that, um that Hurley and Nike put in a, a big offer, which we actually never did. Um, but not to sort of change the subject totally on this, but I don't remember, you know, at that time, Kelly was probably the only one that went from, you know, he, his first year on tour, mm -hmm. I remember we traveled quite a bit together. He was kind of the, I think he was number 44, but it was a different tour than it was, yeah. um, you know, trials and, and everything to get, to get through. Um, and then he won the world title, I think the next year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know. Oh, if, sorry, finish. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if anybody really has that big jump. Um, it takes a second, you know, and kind of what you were saying is I think about with, um, Jordy and other people. And I remember, you have to be well-rounded. At that mm -hmm. time, there was events in Fiji. There was Chopu, obviously, um, which there still is today. But you've got places like J-Bay, which you expect him to get the result. Mm -hmm. um, but not every wave is the wave that sort of suits uh, your surfing ability um, and and is natural to your uh, – yeah, to, to who you are. So um, it definitely takes a second. It's a good point. I think, and it goes back to what you said before, where it's like the the value is in performance, you know? And I think Kelly is a good one because when it comes to that 
hey, like how serious are we, the collective surfing world, about this particular person having a good shot at a world title almost right away? They have to be a paradigm-shifting surfer. And I think Kelly was probably one because of the way he approached surfing. The next one I could kind of think of was almost Mick Fanning to a point just because he was so fast and everyone's like, wow, he's going to beat people badly. I think the, the read on Jordy in 2007 was that we're now starting to see aerial surfing and fin-free surfing really make a dent on the CT, but a lot of the proven performers, that wasn't a regular part of their approach. And everyone looked at someone like Jordy and like, that guy can do that. And physically, he's really big and his rail game's really good. So I kind of think those ingredients went into that call of like, as far as paradigm shifting surfers goes, this is probably someone that we can look at. Now, after two years of getting respectable results, but not winning a world title, not even making a final in those first couple of years, did you feel in your own thoughts or sort of just talk in the industry, was there any kind of recalibration around Jordy's potential? Or was it a little bit like you said, where you're like, look, everyone that knows anything knows that it takes a while. It doesn't matter how good you are. Gosh, these are um, these are great questions, Dave. One thing I would go back, sorry, on what you were just talking about. One of the paradigm changes that I, I see, and, and I, as you brought up, Jordy, is size. Mm, mm. And, you know, um, you know, when, when I was on tour, it was a lot of little guys and, you know, me included, uh, beach breaks and other things. Jordy, one of the things and the reason that he was interesting is he was so broad and he was able to you know, get from point A to Z in, in one bottom turn, you know, and not, there's no wiggles and it was just more pleasing to the eye. Mm. And it was, uh, but then he also had those tricks and other things. So I, I, you know, kind of hearing you talk and I, I do remember just sort of thinking, okay, because, you know, you look at Gabriel's not huge, but he's, he's pretty broad. Mm, John sure. is a pretty big kid. Like yeah. you start to look at what a world tour surfer is. You know, even Yago is pretty tall and, and, and sort of um, a world tour surfer used to be Adriano, totally. uh, Kelly, who, you know, like, so, so there is a paradigm change, um, certainly around that time. Um, and getting back to your question about whether people thought that he, he was, you know, uh, expectations were going to change and right. maybe his uh, flight pattern was going to be different. I think everybody sort of just understands um, and there's moments of brilliance in there that happen. And, and, and quite honestly, around that time, I don't know if I'd have to look, but modern collective and yeah. all these films were coming out that were amazing free surfing on the side. And so you might say, Hey, his competitive stuff is not matching up with his right, uh, right. free surfing, um, which I think is pretty natural for a lot of competitors where you know, they're, they haven't found a way to put that into a competitive format when they feel it is, you know, the Jordy getting the win at J Bay or getting his thirds and maybe getting tripped up. Right. Um, but putting that into the competitive environment where you can kind of at any time it's on tap, that's the magic. Um, and so, I, yeah, I don't remember anybody saying anything or whatever, but I just, I, I do remember heats where, uh, he had a heat with Dane Reynolds at Chopu mm. and it was interesting because both were 
kind of highly valued. Oh, they're like, at, like at the hip, basically, from the time they qualified, like in terms of people talking about them, right? And Dane was very just kind of like, duh, 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 duh. and Jordy was a little bit more, no, I'm going to win a world title. Right. And it was, you know, there's there's been those moments where, um, yeah, just kind of contrasting. And that's what makes sport fun. That's what makes this whole thing fun. Um, but I remember thinking that uh, Jordy needed to do more work. His talent was through the, you know, through the roof, but not in every wave. Mm. It was stuff that he was going to have to learn. And obviously he's so good. He did. Yeah. But um, yeah. The, the size thing is such a good point. I think that's worth exploring on like another episode because when I was a kid and I worked at Rip Curl Surf Center in San Clemente, everyone would come in and pick up their quivers for the CT when it was there. So the whole tour would come in. And I remember when Andy came in, I, I, he was my favorite surfer and I didn't recognize him because he seemed huge by comparison. And he was only, you know, six foot. His fighting weight was six like foot. 175, you know, like, but he seemed like a giant compared to everyone else that was coming in. And to your point, like, you know, the last five years, the, the, everyone's big, you know, and they're just I mean, Owen and Dane and, and John, they, they've all gotten to the place where they're not limited by their size. It's an asset, but, you know, thinking back, so, so 2008, 2009 happens, 2010, it's different for Jordy. He starts the year with a runner up on the gold coast. He loses to Taj Burrow in the final. He gets a fifth at Bells. He gets a fifth at Santa Catarina. And then we get to Jeffrey's Bay as CT number four that season. And Jordy's prior results at Jeffrey's Bay in 2006, he got a wild card spot after Warwick Wright. Uh, won the local trials, but then hurt himself the day before the event. So Jordy, because he finished runner-up in the trials, he got walk spot. He finished third in the event. He was only 17. He, he lost to Taj again, which is a, a sort of a theme throughout his career, in the semifinals. But for sure, that result probably fed into that bidding war the following year. 2007, he doesn't surf it. He's on the QS. 2008, his rookie season, he finishes ninth, losing to Taj Burrow. In 2009, he finishes 17th, uh, losing to Dane Reynolds in round two, which, as we just talked about, probably hurt a little bit. And then 2010, it was the World Cup year in South Africa. And were you on the ground in South Africa in 2010, or was that not kind of part of your purview at the time? Probably not. I can't remember it. Yeah. They all blend together. Sure. Yeah, just, exactly. <laughs> I think I think that that trip all the years all blend together and then the calls all blend together because it's one of those spots where it's like, okay, we're gonna go on hold for thirty minutes fourteen times today to see if the swell's gonna turn up. Um, I, well, I, I'm not sure if you agree with this. Now and and I don't think anyone would accuse me of being the most spiritual person they've ever met, although I do try. But it does feel like you know, in life and certainly on tour, there are moments when momentum kind of takes over, you know, destiny, fate, whatever you want to call it. But in 2010, the World Cup being in South Africa, the years of buildup of Jordy Smith on the international stage, and frankly, at this point, just how much better he seemed to surf J-Bay than pretty much anyone else, it kind of felt like 2010 was he, his year to win that event from the start. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? And I remember thinking this, I, uh, I don't really think about it during the year, but when I would 
you'd get into the pipe event and it was like world titles on and rankings and you start looking at the draw and you go, okay, well, so-and-so is a great pipe surfer. Mm. And you're going thinking that they're just going to find their way through because they're a great pipe surfer. But then when you get into the draw, it's interesting as you kind of went into, you know, oh, he lost to Dane, he lost mm. to Taj, both great surf. Like you could be the best at any one spot, but that doesn't mean you're going to win or actually even make it far into the event. Draw The draw matters. Right. And, you know, um, obviously the better guys, you know, it sometimes it takes a second to get your footing and then you sort of steamroll through an event. But it's interesting when you were just kind of labeling who he was surfing against and losing, you know, even right now you look at the cut and it's a smaller group of surfers and you sit there and go, there are no easy heats. Right. And, you know, you kind of look at, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Jordy going into this event to J-Bay, having confidence, having all of this, but truly you have a, you have the world's best surfers. Right. And so at any given moment, a wave doesn't come, uh, you know, you miss a section, whatever it may be, it puts you on the back foot. Um, that's, that's potentially all that it takes. You take the first wave of the set, the second wave's better. Right. You know, there's, there's a little bit of luck that goes along with, with everything. Truly, um, your uh, talent and everything can, can cover up some mistakes. But when you get to somewhat even levels of talent or performance, you need a little bit of luck your way. Mm. And it's interesting just, you know, uh, as you think, and, and, and I actually think the better the waves, at some level, the better luck you need. Mm. Chopu, you can't get a big score unless you get a good deep tube ride. Right. If that wave doesn't come, you know, it's not like Huntington Beach or something. You can go on a closeout and do a, a whirly bird and get a score almost no matter what. Um, it's hard to create a barrel. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. Like, and I remember back when you were at the WSL, it, it went into when we were identifying potential finals venues, right? Where it's like, well, do you want the surfing to decide the world champion or do you want the ocean? And I could see arguments both ways, but to your point, it's like, Hey, at pipe or Chopu or, or even big cloud break, like on the day, like if the talent level's ubiquitous, it's just who has that wave, right? Um, and then as you point out, there's other places where it's more how can you surf the waves on offer? It, it, it's interesting. You know, we did the uh, the TikTok of his win in 2010 during the, the previous segment, so I'm not going to repeat it here, but he never really stumbles in this particular event. His average mm. heat score, 16.35. His average single Jesus. wave score, 8.17. Um, a really emotional win as he's chaired up the beach and, and a destiny in part, which was fulfilled. Now, you know, back to kind of the expectation managements, when he finally wins his first CT, do you personally remember thinking anything in particular? Was this the beginning of a new era? Uh, the floodgates are now open. He's a real contender now. Or were you more measured than that personally? Probably more measured because mm. I mean, look, I I just um, I love the way Jordy surfs, especially being um, not a very tall human. Right. <laughs> I, I, I truly look up to Jordy, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, he does things that I think, like uh, I, you know, most of us dream of. There's a small 
percentage of people. And so when he rides a wave, you know, um, to his potential, fuck, it looks really cool. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I'm just a fan of like great surfing. And so the best people when they are pushed is fun to watch. And so when I think, yeah, I, I guess, you know, the, the way the, um, you know, certainly a best person at a location being Jay Bay mm. and, and Jordy is always rad. Um, and I'm, and you know, I'm going back. I, uh, you may want to cut some of this cause I'm trying to, is the year that he got. So, because there's a couple waves that he got tens that were these beautiful blue, like, was that 2010? 2010. I, I didn't see any tens. I could go back and, and check it again. I, I mean, it, it kind of leads into my next point, but like, you know, 2010, the season CT finishes with Kelly clinching his 10th world title in Puerto Rico in November. Jordy finishes that yep. year runner up, which is his best finish to date Jeez. alongside uh, yeah, another runner up finish in 2016. And I was thinking about this so much in doing this episode. It's a really strange thing to consider because, as you pointed out, like I watch him surf in 2023. And I think he surfs better than ever, you know, and of course the CT has gotten much harder, the talent level, it's off the charts, but you know, he can do it in the air. He has the power, he's forehand, backhand, and he's developed into a great tube rider. You know, he's finished in the top 10, eight times in his career. And he's finished in the top five, six of those eight times. And, you know, he's ranked 16th right now heading into Jeffrey's Bay. So unlikely that it happens this season but if he were to make a run at the world title next year and win it or the year after i mean it wouldn't really surprise me from an ability standpoint which for as long as he's been on tour i think is saying something and and you know as i was saying it's it's kind of strange to consider when you look at the totality of his career and ask okay well when was his best chance to make good on that hype and those expectations and win a world title. Was it, was it right away and kind of blitzing the tour with his brand of surfing before they knew what hit them? Was it post Mick Kelly, pre John, John Brazilian storm? Is it right now? Like, what do you, what do you think about that? So there's a motivation thing that's really challenging. And what in this question, just because I think there's a couple things. So Back uh, back in my previous life, I did a little bit of research, um, had some people helping me, um, but we basically did uh, a peak performance age as a pro surfer. What is it? Um, men and women are a little bit different. Women tend to be younger. Men tend to be older. Right. Um, and that is uh, world titles and such. And so we found sort of 28 to 32 as being a, a pretty good window for, for, for the dudes. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is any of the things that you may need practice at, you get some, uh, two, uh, you tend to be a little bit less reactionary and just kind of let things happen and focus on the goal ahead. And you kind of move the other stuff out. You're not as uh, young and sort of chasing everything. Um, so it, and it seems like those are peak performance years, right? Contrary to that is, hey, you lose a lot of heats that are close and you can be discouraged radically. And so those can also be years that you're just riding it out, if you will, you know. Um, And so 
for Jordy, you know, I kind of go back and there's handful of performances that are just like crazy dominant. He was nails at Trestles a couple years. Definitely. He was unbelievable at J Bay years. You know, there's events and moments um that are incredible. Um he was fucking gnarly at Bells. Yeah. Like I look at Jordy at, you know, and and I guess kind of going back to your question, hey, for Jordy to be in the top five, there's probably five out of the ten events where I'm going, he's in the top five. Sure. Like he's gonna need to get he's gonna need to be in the in the semis in those events. And some of the other and the other events that he's sort of just a top ten guy he's going to need to get quarters, right? Mm. Or whatever it is. Right. So so the math in it is like, you got to strike at the events that you are the leader um, and make sure you get results at the one that you, you know. So I don't think it's um, impossible. I I always kind of look at, I mean, he's on my fantasy team uh, through the year, so <laughs> I'm voting on him. <laughs> I mean, my, but, with, <laughs> like, the, I mean, even what you just said is kind of an impressive feather in his cap. This is his 15th year on tour, and you are objectively saying, well, half the events on the CT today, after him being on tour for 15 years, he's a walk-up top five, top five. right? Like, that's, that's yeah. kind of amazing. I, I thought that was really interesting, too, the work you were talking about before, where for the guys, it's 28 to 32 is that peak performance window. And I'd imagine that in addition to the, the physical components uh, of that post 32, although I think everyone on tour, men and women are taking much better care of themselves. They'll seem like superhumans at this point, but there's just kind of the emotional and psychological and to your point, the motivational components of just life. You know, you end up, people become parents and people are in relationships and people suffer tragedies and all of that has the potential to, to focus and motivate, but also at the same time, like calibrate perspective away from that singular focus on a world title, which pretty much everyone that's won one says that they're like, I had to be selfish. I had to be singularly focused to do this thing. Um, and as I think a lot of people get older and I'm not saying everyone, I'm generalizing, but you know, that, that you, you don't want to be that selfish as you get older, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, and I also think it, you see it in different ways and forms, like people who fall off tour, it's harder for them to find their way back on right. a lot of times. And mainly because the dream is like, Hey, you know, it sounds amazing to be on tour. But what you you have to give up a lot to get a lot, mm. and so to to win a world, just you know, hey, for someone to be on tour, they're giving up a bunch. Mm. They're getting a bunch. To win a world title, you got to live. You got to give a lot, and so not everyone's willing to give up that much. It's a great point. Well, the the twenty twenty three Corona Open J Bay. Stop number nine of 10 on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour season starts on July 13th, and it will stream live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Pat O'Connell, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, I'll have you back real soon, I hope. Cheers. Thanks for the chat. I got to the office. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> safe, safe hands. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, that guys. was great, man. <laughs> So that's it. That's the lineup's first installment of our Watershed series. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for listening, and thanks to Pat O'Connell for riding along. 
Stop number nine on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Corona Open J-Bay in South Africa, starts this week and will stream live on WorldSurfLeague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. Today's episode is produced by Miguel Clemente, uh, executive produced by myself, Jed Pearson, and Tim Greenberg, with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. Lineup acknowledges that it is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash and the Kumeye native people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup.